listening to the Autistic Tea Party Podcast. I'm Malia. And I'm Kat. And together, we will be your hosts as we explore some of the hottest topics in the autistic and neurodivergent communities at large. We'll be speaking with parents, therapists, experts, educators, and more to dig into the more nuanced discussions being had in and about the disabled community. So join us as we sip and spill the tea. This is the Autistic Tea Party Podcast. hard at work to bring you some of our greatest content yet. Join us this summer for 12 weeks of free and brilliant webinars every Wednesday starting June 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. When I tell you that you're not going to want to miss a single talk, I'm not saying that lightly. We've got therapists, educators, parenting experts, and more. So head to allteach.com now to see the lineup and get your tickets to the event. Hi everyone. Today with us, we have Gabe, also known as the Indomitable Black Man on TikTok, where he talks about parenting and gives so many tips to parents and caregivers about ways to connect with children and gives incredible guidance. Uh, Gabe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, That's the million-dollar question that nobody is really prepared for. I am an Atlanta native living in Central Florida. Um, I work with special needs kids uh, for my day job. I'm also a performer. Um, I've been a teacher. I'm going back into teaching uh, exceptional student education. Uh, I'm really tall. That's something about me. I'm six foot eight. Um, oh, wow, you are really tall. I, yes. Yeah. I did not play basketball. Please don't ask. Uh, but yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty much it. I love it. I love it. Now, my husband is six six, and he literally says the same thing when he introduces himself to people. He's like, "No, I did not play basketball." You have to. It's yeah, like, you do, because otherwise that's what people no. are going to ask you. You know what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> like, what did tall people do before basketball was invented? But whenever I see a very tall person, I'm like, you see a whole other world than I do. <laughs> yeah, how is that it is up there? <laughs> so what got you, so you work with, uh, you know, special needs disabled children. What kind of got you into that? How did you find yourself in that line of work? Or not, I never actually saw myself as a teacher. I wanted to go into biomedical research. However, around like 25, I found myself um, in a very insecure living situation, I will say. And I needed a job desperately. And a friend of mine was doing what I do, but at a lower level. And he was telling me how I should apply for his job because I won't need um, a college degree. At that time, I didn't have one. I just had a high school diploma. And so he told me I could do this, make pretty decent money, and I can work with kids, which I wanted to do. I swore I would never work at retail or food service ever again. So this is what I was going to go into. Um, I did the training. I got certified and I got my first kid. And from the time I saw him, I I was like, okay, yeah, this is my job. This this is Mm -hmm. my career right now. I am perfectly okay with that. So that's kind of how I fell into it. 
but I have been working with kids my entire life in some capacity or another, babysitting, um, taking care of my other um, family and friends, kids. Uh, I taught uh, as a teacher in a private school. Um, yeah, that, I've always worked with kids. I've always been really good with kids. I've had a very good understanding of how kids operate and think. So I guess my life was kind of uh, leading to this moment. That's amazing. And how did you, um, you know, working with kids does not always mean that you work with them well or in a, um, I don't want to use the word progressive, but like in a, in a self-aware way. You know, there is a lot of uh, parenting child care advice that's very, you know, well, like they'll eat if they're hungry or, um, you know, things that can border on like negligent sort of <laughs> parenting but it, or child care that have kind of been around forever. So how did you find yourself in um, in the position that you are? Because when we look at your like TikTok content and things like that, it is... Um, you're promoting a lot of very like self-aware parenting and gentle parenting techniques and gentle caregiving techniques. Was that sort of always how you viewed things or was there something that opened your eyes to sort of like the way a lot of people do things, you know, aren't right and are not healthy for childhood development? So it's kind of, I'll describe it like this. My mom and my dad were raised old school. So I'm black and in, uh, the black culture, um, by and large, not saying that it's a monolith by any means, but in the American black culture, there is this firmness, this strictness, this authoritarianism that exists in the black household where it's do as I say, no matter what. And if you don't, we'll beat you or spank you or verbally, emotionally or physically abuse you. And so I was raised in an environment that wasn't abusive, but it was kind of close. Not to say I don't love my parents and they didn't do what they could. They did what they could based on what information they had. Mm -hmm. But I always recognized that there was a different way to approach anything that I did, even as a young kid. So I'm a kid. I don't have full control over what I say and what I do. There mm -hmm. were things that I knew I was going through but couldn't express. And so as an adult, knowing that as an adult, being a kid that could not express himself or communicate how I wanted things to go or understand things, I now have to revert back to that mindset when I'm working with different parents or working with their kids and say, OK, when I was a kid, this is how this situation would make me feel. Yeah. So I wonder if this kid is going through the same situation. I should probably try to uh, find a different way to approach the issue at hand. Um, an example of this would be I would get in trouble a lot at school. And I was actually talking to my dad about this um, this past weekend. And he came down from Georgia to see me acting up in class. And to the teacher, to anybody who's just looking, I'm bad. I'm a troublemaker. I'm always talking with people. Mm -hmm. But none of them ever actually stopped to think maybe he's not being challenged enough in the class. Maybe there's something that he needs in addition to what he's um, getting in terms of curriculum to enhance his, um, 
his academics because I came from Georgia where I was in the gifted program. I was going into a different school to learn advanced curriculum every week. And then I came to Florida and they took me out of the gifted program. They put me in gen ed where I did not think or learn the same way other kids did. So it was, it was me being a frustrated child with not enough to do where I could finish homework really quickly. So I'm looking at each kid as what are they trying to convey? What are they trying to learn? What are they communicating? And how can I meet those needs? And I feel if a lot of parents looked at it from that approach, you would have a lot fewer issues than we're seeing now. Like there, there wouldn't be as much stress. You wouldn't have to be so upset about things. You know how to help them. One thing I noticed, because I worked as a paraeducator too, one thing I noticed is um, that there is sort of like a, and you bring this up in a lot of your videos, that like children are their own autonomous people. Like they are people. And that a lot of parenting techniques and a lot of therapeutic techniques and things like that seem to kind of toss that out the window. And the goal then becomes compliance to um, whoever, you know, their caregiver is, their caretaker is, and things, uh, you know, people of that nature. But what, you know, and, and I take issue for that, with that for several reasons, but um, what are your thoughts on like compliance-based programs or therapies? um, And why is that not always the best um, approach to take, I guess? So that's a really good question. When I was uh, first starting out um, in the field I'm in now, there were, there are different, um, I guess, agencies. And one of the agencies was big on the compliance. And I can understand compliance in terms of task completion, where you're trying to get them to complete a task that's going to be beneficial for a life skill, like learning how to tie your shoes. Okay, I need you to comply and finish this task. Mm -hmm. However, there is a thing called picking your battles and being aware of what the child's behavior is trying to convey again, um, as I said before. So when I'm looking at compliance, I have to also recognize that this person isn't a pet. This human is not a dog that I'm going to force into submission to obey my will. What, what, what is that going to get me? What's that going to get my child? What's going to get any person if I'm trying to force them to comply? The goal isn't necessarily to get them to do that. The goal is for them to pick up the skill. And that doesn't have to be picked up instantly. That can take time. It has to be based on the child's level of one cooperation understanding and are they capable of doing it so Mm -hmm. compliance for me isn't this requirement it's okay you don't want to do this right now i need you to do it right now i'm going to explain why i need you to do it right now and i'll help you do it right now like uh for example i had a kid who needed to take his medication and his medication has to be taken at a specific time So in that case, I need him to comply because the medication has to be administered at that time. He didn't want to do it. In situations like that where you need compliance, it's still very good to have some sort of wiggle room or some sort of patience or, in my case, administer the medication sooner. Not that I was administering the medication at all, but the nurse who was trying to do it 
we start that process sooner because we know it's going to take this uh, person longer to get the medication administered. So yeah. instead of me getting frustrated because it's down to like the last 30 seconds before you have to take this medication and you know it's going to take him 15 minutes to do it, start 15 minutes sooner to try to lead into that and then work on decreasing that time as you go on. So I'm not really a fan of compliance in that sense. Um, I would imagine that in instances of uh, life-threatening situations where you have to have immediate compliance at that moment, that's one thing. But when it comes down to just basic skill acquisition, it's like teaching. It's like going to school. You're not going to be perfect at something right off the bat. Kids aren't going to be perfect right off the bat. And they're going to think for themselves because they are autonomous. They are they are their own beings. Mm -hmm. So it's best to work with them instead of against them. Well, and like, I feel like in those situations, like, it's our job as adults to, like, every moment is a teachable moment with kids and that, like, you know, trial and error is a good thing. You know, we're teaching them how to problem solve in these different ways, even though they may not see it that way in the moment. Like, if you're just focusing on the compliance of it, like there's so much that you're missing out on. And especially like when it comes to like discipline, um, I've worked with families since for as long as I can remember. And these type of interactions and conversations are often overlooked or not even considered. It's just, there's so much focus on the compliance um, and then kids grow up with that. And then they are also not thinking outside the box until there's something that intervenes that it's like, no, there's other ways to do this. Right. And it seems like it sort of like stifles intrinsic motivation. If compliance is the goal at the end of the day, mm -hmm. where it's like at a certain point, like there's not going to be anybody there to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we develop that? Like, intrinsic motivation when compliance is the end goal um, for a lot of things. And I think that leads to a lot of like problems down the road and into adulthood, you know, um, it, like with self-starting and things like that. And I think that can actually be really detrimental, you know, in the long term. Um, one thing I really want to dig into, because a lot of your content is about um, this explosion of like, I think, and I think it comes with like social media becoming so big and people recording every part of their, their lives and sometimes exposing parts of their lives that like, I mean, in some cases, thank God, because people can be like, that was really unsafe and like scary. And I feel bad for that child, but you also see a lot more punitive punishment by parents like online. Um, I, you know, there was, you know, I was going through a page last night and the, the videos of like parents, like showing how they punish their child and you know the this kid runs laps this kid i'm just gonna like you know yell at him on snapchat and public humiliation and like you know shaving kids heads to sh you know like as a form of punishment and things like that where like um it's very shame like and and humiliation oriented mm -hmm. um can we i mean obvious it seems so obvious and disturbing to me <laughs> that people would do that. Why do you think that like, I mean, it's, it's very clear from a lot of things, you know, that like shame is not actually an effective motivator. It just causes a lot of like resentment. 
you know, yeah. so, and, and like a lot of emotional trauma. So like, why do you think that parents still use that as a, I don't know, like, I don't even know what you would call it, like a, a punishment tactic? So this is going from a very, if, if, okay, I have to say a lot to even get to that point. There's a book that I read that was recommended by the situational therapist mm. called Spare the Children, why spanking, why whoopings won't save black America. Mm. And in the book, the author is talking about how um, corporal punishment was really big in Europe, but it was never, we don't have it. We don't have evidence of it being in like West Africa or in the new world. Mm. And when you're looking at the European society and how they treated children back then, um, even up until the Victorian era, it was very compliance children are wicked you have to beat them into submission they were almost no different than the way you would treat a dog they were essentially a pet and so because you you would do stuff like that like i remember seeing um a tv show i think i, I want to say it was um what's that tv show it's like super romantic um takes place in scotland um i want to say highlander i could Ooh. be wrong no i think you're right Highlander, where the lady goes back in time or something. I haven't watched it, but I, I think is it. Oh, right? I know what you're talking about. The only way I know it is because yes, it's in Scotland, but also like lots of nudity. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's it. I've only heard about it. I haven't watched it yet, unfortunately. I saw like a few episodes. It lost my interest. But <laughs> in one scene, this little kid, uh, I think, stole some bread or light or something, and they nailed his ear in the middle of the town square to a stake, like a little post or whatever. And he had to be brave enough to pull his head off of that stake or just be left there. This was a common punishment for kids in that region at that time. And it was seen that if you would do something so humiliating and so horrible, the kid would not do it again. But we have repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. We have kids who don't think with their prefrontal cortex, they think with their amygdala in a lot of cases where they're impulsive. They don't have this idea of long-term consequences. So you humiliating them and beating them isn't going to work. Punitive punishments for kids don't work like we intend them to. They, they don't even work for adults. We can see that with the American prison system. Yeah. And so that is a remnant of the mindset that's been around for hundreds of years and has not actually gone anywhere. I mean, we have gentle parenting now where we're seeing that positive behavior is, or positive reinforcement is being popularized more, mm -hmm. but that's recent. That's like the last 30, 40, 50 years. We still have people who are holding on to these archaic mindsets and are justifying it. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at humiliation, it's, I think it's the worst thing in the world and it can lead to disastrous consequences. Uh, the video that I, um, I do, uh, do edit, no, stitched not too long ago was a black woman yelling at her son and posting it on, uh, I guess it was his Snapchat or his Instagram. Mm -hmm. And you can see the emotions that this boy has on his face yeah. where it's completely unwarranted and there was a point where she yelled at him and he said, um, speak up when I'm talking to you or something like that. 
and you could you saw the absolute rage he had mm-hmm. and the resolve that I will never trust you, talk to you, be vulnerable with you. Yeah. You aren't my mom moment. And I think that's the most devastating thing for a child to go through because now you're thrusting that child into a world that is already unforgiving without giving him the remaining tools that he needs to be successful in life. And that's going to cause mental issues down the road, God forbid. But the pattern is usually that. And you see it time and time again, there was, um, Another kid who I think he stole some money and his mom put money on a table and he said, uh, she said, hold on to the money. And every time he tried to touch it, she would just slap the crap out of him while she's recording this. And it's like, to what end are you trying to do this? You're just stripping his spirit. Like, okay, stealing is bad. We understand it's bad. I'm not saying don't provide any sort of correction or discipline to this, this, action but let's look at what caused the action in the first place what's the the root of the issue what caused this child to think that they can do that let's deal with that issue and let's change the environment that they're in so that the behavior doesn't continue humiliating a child this is going to make the child go to school get ridiculed picked on bullied and then god forbid that child winds up with crippling anxiety or depression god forbid that child goes off and does something brash and we've seen it time and time again. And so if we know it doesn't work, why do we keep doing it? Because it makes us feel better. Um, I was reading a study recently, and it was talking about parents who used uh, punitive punishment, specifically spanking. And one of the things it talked about was how a lot of parents who abuse their kids have an external locus, meaning they find validation outside of themselves or things happen outside of their control and they're trying to respond to what's happened. So you have these people who have low self-esteem who are finding validation by doing horrible things to people they have power over and then posting it in places where they know they'll get that same validation from. And I'm not saying this is the case with everyone, but if you were doing this to your kid, I could only assume that you care about what other people think. That's always blown my mind of the, the public display of it. I can't right. even, it's like, it doesn't, it's weird because it almost seems like it, it's like it bypasses the sense of self-preservation. It's like, you can't post a video on Snapchat. You can't post a video on social media of you like slapping the shit out of your kid and then go, that's not going to come back to like, there's not going to be any consequences for this, which speaks to another level of like how removed from reality are you in those moments that you can't see that like that shit's going to have CPS like on your at, at least CPS on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. It, it's very like it's terrifying. I don't know. I don't. Well, and I think that when that's not the case, when CPS doesn't show up on their mm-hmm. door, that it's reinforcing in itself in some ways for. Yeah for these parents. And like, when you talk about like watching that video, cause I, I know which one you're talking about. Um, watching like the expressions on that kid's face, parents and caregivers, like we are these kids is like their lifeline. Mm-hmm. We are everything to them. 
in their, you know, formative years. And so like when this kind of stuff is happening, this kind of abuse, um, like you can see that like you are no longer trusted to them. Like you're still their lifeline, you know, but like they don't trust that lifeline anymore. And so it's like now they're, you know, in this traumatic state that they may or may not be able to leave as, you know, kids, but also so, so alone yeah. in, in their minds, mm -hmm. in their bodies, in their homes. Like it's so devastating. And it's like, I don't understand how like people can watch those videos and not see that happening completely unaware that that is happening. Well, or the logic that like, okay, so this is another question I had. How do you, how do we deal with, you know, and a lot of these responses, like, and you brought this up in your videos too, Gabe, is the, the like, how many people are just so like, like cheering these people on? Like it's acceptable, like it's something, you know, and then you get the whole, well, I, you know, my parents did this to me when I was younger and I turned out fine and I'm still here. Or the people who are, you know, being like, well, yeah, he deserved that or they deserved that or, you know, they had it coming or whatever. How do like we grapple with people like that are so removed from that reality, so removed from the consequences of their actions? It's it's really hard. And I've had to I'm all, <laughs> if you ever go down a lot of my comment sections, you'll see me arguing with some parent who just thinks I'm I'm an idiot. I don't have kids. I don't know what I'm talking about. We've normalized abuse. We've normalized the mistreatment of children. It's been normalized for hundreds of years. It's it's a taboo to raise them differently. And to a certain extent, I had those same views as well. Like I would see a kid in the store acting like they ain't got no sense. And I'm like, that won't need to tear that child up. Like there's a there's a show called The Boondocks. And one of the yeah. characters, Granddad, he's chilling in the store, and this kid is, I want marshmallows, I want candy. And the mom is freaking out, doesn't know what to do. And Granddad is like, you ever just try being his behind? It's, it's that normalized. And I think uh, another layer of that is you laugh at your trauma. Right. right. Every family function I've been to, at some point throughout the evening, we're going to laugh and joke about how we got our butts whooped when we were kids and we feel that we didn't deserve it. Funerals, cookouts, whatever. We're going to laugh about it because that's how we cope with our trauma rather than dealing with it and confronting it. Um, also, this past weekend, I was talking to my dad. I was like, you know, you did stuff that I you didn't need to do. You didn't have to beat me for every two things. And he said, well, I did everything I could after you turned 16. I was just going to let you be emancipated. Mm -hmm. And that hit me because I was like, so instead of trying to raise me in a way that would be conducive, instead of trying to find other ways to raise me, you would just throw me out yeah. and not have to deal with it. Make it make sense because your job as a parent is to provide me with the skills necessary to be independent, but you're not doing it. So it's that normalization of that abuse. So when people get out into the real world, they don't know any different. They don't know what it's like to be in an environment that isn't abusive. They don't know what it's like to have somebody that truly loves them and shows them that they love them. They think that love is being abused. 
Okay, so for for a lot of us that um, grew up in households where this this was the type of parenting that happened, you know, and years down the road, we finally get the courage and we have these moments, these come to moments with our parents, much like what you were just talking about. And we go like, you know, what the fuck was that? Why? Like, why did you do these things? Like, why did you think that that was okay? Why did you hit me? Why did you say these insulting things to me? Why did you never let me trust my own instincts and all that kind of stuff? And then you get the, well, I did the best I could answer. And that feels like an absolute and complete slap in the face and stab to the heart Mm -hmm. because I'm a mother myself now. And I have never raised a hand, my voice, nothing. I I have been aware since day one. And maybe that's because I went to therapy and and I I never wanted to be anything like that. And I never wanted to pass that trauma on to my child. But how do like adults that grew up in that, how do we come to terms with like who our parents are now? But like, how do you deal with the half-ass sort of like, well, you know, we did what we could with what we had at the time. <laughs> the gaslighting? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that. Thank you. Um, it's like it's easier for them to defend it than to yeah. accept and feel the guilt, the shame, the mm-hmm. realization, and move through that to get to the, wow, I'm sorry. Like, I did this to somebody who I love more than anything. Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, uh, his name is Will. He said, if you were to use that same logic anywhere else, would it work? If you are, you you play for the NBA and you lose by 50 points and you go up to the coach and say, well, I did the best I could. You're probably going to get cut. If you are working for NASA and you are trying to do calculations that could make a multi-billion dollar shuttle go to wherever you wanted to go or not, and you say, I did the best I could, that's not going to fly. So if it's not going to fly in pretty much every other aspect of life, why do you think that's going to fly when it comes to raising another human being? People don't like to be told that they're bad. They don't like to be told that they failed. People like to feel good. And whenever people are called out for the injustices that they participate in, both actively or and passively, and or passively, they're going to buck. They're going to double down on what they believe. They're going to deny it because that's that's how they can maintain their power. That's how they can maintain their position. They're going to gaslight you. That's a natural human response to it. It's like the backfire effect. No, this is what you did. There's proof that this is what happened. This is empirically evident. What you did did not work. Well, I did the best I could. You've been met with information and you feel defensive. So you're doubling down on that that wrong position. Yeah. No, you're a bad person. And they may not ever, you may not ever get it. I, I've never gotten an apology for it. My mom has apologized more for it, um, but my dad has not. And I may never get one. And I had to say, okay, this is who my dad is. He doesn't understand. He was raised in a time where he thought that that was right. I know it's not right. So the best thing I can do for myself is to raise my children 
to be raised, not in the way that I think they should be raised or in a way that's going to benefit me, but what's the best thing I can do for my kids to make sure that they grow up emotionally, mentally, and physically healthy. So I would say that's the best thing that any any of us can do to to deal with that. I don't I don't think it's good. You, I don't think you're going to get the apology that you're looking for. So it's best to just cut your losses and then focus on being better for your kids, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting situation, you know, especially when you, you know, as I do, like I have a child and then watching how your parents who did these things to you growing up, who disciplined you in these very like you know, abusive ways, watching them interact with like your child in ways that are so much more affectionate and gentle and loving and all these things that they could, they, they could never be for you is I think a special hell for people who grow up in households mm-hmm. like that, because it really does become this sort of like, there's also a grieving process of watching this person change in these ways, you know, these people who are abusive to you, watching them change to become a better person. And then the anger comes up with that because it's just like, where the hell was that? Where was that all those years? And now it's here, you know, for my child. And I'm deeply grateful for that. But where the hell was that my entire life? You know, how can you be this big person? And it's tough because it's like, at the one time you want to like applaud the growth, but it is a massive slap in the face. Yeah, that's real. Um, I don't have, I don't have kids, so I, I can't see my parents doing anything different, but I would imagine that you, you would, you would have to come to the understanding of two things. One, your parents may have grown. They may have absolutely changed, which is great. But two, they give the kids back. Yeah. So of course they're going to be better with their kids because they give your kids back. They had to deal with you and they had to deal with you in a time in their life where they were focused on trying to make ends meet, trying to raise you, trying to raise your siblings, trying to balance the house checkbook and all that stuff while they're also growing. Meanwhile, your uh, children, that's your, that's on you now. So now the parents are like, well, I knew what to do. I know what to do better now. I know all the mistakes I made with you. So now I can do it better with your grandkids because you're mm-hmm. also I'm going to give them back to you at some point. That's that's what I would imagine. I I don't have kids yet. Yeah, it's uh, um, it's something I think that I really just, you know, through watching a lot of different TikToks and thinking about that kind of stuff and noticing anger come up in myself um, recently and not really being able to identify where that came from. And finally being able to be like, it's happiness that people are growing and healing themselves. And then grief and anger that that couldn't have been for you. And now you have to deal with, you know, all right. the all the baggage that you ended up with, you know. Um, well, and, and you're witnessing of that happening with your kids and your parents. It's like you're seeing it happen. And there's like a complete bypassing of the conversation that like we were just talking about. Like there was no like reconciling of yes. that or anything. And so you're just like, wait what mm-hmm. yeah yeah You're like am i not here anymore like <laughs> that's it that's what it feels like it feels like a complete erasure it's like they notice the mistakes they made and then they erase them you know and then if you just never address it it just never gaslighting yeah yeah exactly I'm just gonna keep sweeping it under the rug here it's lovely um 
Anyways, let me uh, pull myself out of my trauma response for a second. Listen. And <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about, um, actually, this this I really uh, did want to talk about, lying and cognitive development. Mm-hmm. You brought up in one of your videos that lying is actually a very healthy part of a child's, you know, an adolescent's, like, cognitive development. Yes. And incidentally, that is also one of the things that children are most punished for. Can you explain how parents can handle that while, you know, sort of like you, you talk about accountability uh, versus punitive punishment. So how can people apply that and also appreciate the fact that um, cognitive, that it is a normal and healthy part of cognitive development? Yes. So I'll talk about the the lying uh, aspect first. And you might have to remind me for the second part because mm-hmm. the way my brain is set up. Um but essentially, when you have lying, kids get to a certain point cognitively where they're learning to understand themselves apart from other people. They're starting to develop individuality around like two and three. So one of the most important words that a child will know and will know first is no. When they start saying no, a toddler is going to use that like there's no tomorrow because now they're understanding that this word has power. If I don't want something, I can say no, and it goes away. Mm-hmm. And that starts to separate them from their parents. They're starting to realize, oh, I have a say in things. So now we're looking at perspective. And so one of the skills that you have when you're lying is perspective taking, is what they want to call it. And it basically is a kid understands what the truth is, because in order for a kid to lie, they, they have to know the truth. And so they're starting to recognize that there is a shared perspective that humans have or a shared reality. But then they notice that their words can be used to alter other people's perception of this shared reality. And that's where the cognitive development lies. They're recognizing that other people think, other people feel, other people um, perceive that are different than them. And so this is an an exciting mindset for a toddler or for a young child where they're like, well, I can say something. Of course, I'm not thinking this, you know, consciously, but their brain is like, I can say certain things and have people feel a certain type of way. Um, And so we also have to look at, and this goes into the next part of it, dealing with it. We have to understand why kids lie. Um, Kids can lie intentionally. Well, they they pretty much always lie intentionally, but it's we have to look at the reason of why they're lying. Usually it's to avoid some sort of unwanted consequence or it can be just for something fun like, I don't know, little kids telling little white lies or something like that. Um, Or say, for instance, um, a friend comes up to them, you know, um, it's raining outside. No, it's not. They know it's not raining, but they're going to say it is. And it's ha ha. It's funny. It's cute. We have to recognize that one, kids are impulsive. They're trying out new social interactions. They're trying out new social dynamics. And it's your job to facilitate when and how they use it. Now, every adult, I don't care who you are, has lied. And according to a study I read um, a couple of days ago, Um, I think the average adult lies at least 13 times a day. Um, I don't because I'm perfect, but others (laughs) do. (laughs) And so 
because we know that people lie, but we recognized when it's acceptable in society to lie. Our goal shouldn't be trying to get them to be these non-liars. Our goal is to be teaching them how to be appropriate in society, how to be good morally. So if I have a kid who's lying about taking things or hurting people, that's a problem. I'm going to start explaining from a very early age why we tell the truth. I'm going to put them in positions where they have to think about why you wouldn't want to lie, why you would want to tell the truth. And I want to also put my child in an environment where they can feel safe to tell me the truth, where I'm not going to give them some unwanted um, uh, consequence. I'm not going to beat my kid because they lied. I'm going to give them a, uh, a consequence for it. Say, for instance, if I tell you don't eat these cookies, I come back, there were 42 cookies and now there's 12. I'm going to be like, who ate all the cookies? I didn't. There's literally only me and you here. Um, I know you ate the cookies. So for the rest of this week, you cannot have any cookies. And I'm going to throw these cookies away so nobody can have these. If I can't have no cookies, can't nobody have no cookies. But it's getting them to understand there's a reason why. And then having a conversation. Let's explain why it's bad to lie. When you're lying to me, I can't trust you with other areas. I can't give you bigger tasks. I can't give you bigger responsibilities because I feel that you will lie to me about what's happening. If somebody hurts you and you lie to me, how can I help you? You know what I mean? It's about understanding why these things happen, understanding the functions of why it's happening, understanding kids don't know that they don't know and they're just playing with new toys. And then you teach them how to use that toy to their advantage. Because I mean, if you have a kid that's good at lying, they might be a good salesman. They can sell salt to a slug. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Kind of. They could be an excellent lawyer. I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, So it's about teaching the child what's socially appropriate and what's ethically appropriate, morally appropriate. And I think that people don't give children enough credit to make those distinctions. At all. You know, like at all. Like children are incredibly capable of understanding nuance. I would love if, and I'm sorry for lack of being able to gracefully segue into this question, but (laughs) do you have advice for um, parents or, you know, even if not from the parent perspective, like how they can reparent themselves in the process while they're growing this capacity to regulate themselves to be better for their kids? Yes. Um, When I talk to my parents, when I do a consultation, most of the time I spend is talking to the parents about the things they can do for themselves because they've been in traumatic situations and they're trying not to do the same things to their kids. The first thing, the, the main thing I talk about is taking a step back and just breathing and thinking, even when it's it's hard, when everything is going against you, looking at your kid like an investment. Let me take a step back and think, is this going to benefit my kid? How is this going to affect me and my kid? Am I talking out of a place of hurt? It's taking that step back to think about your actions because, I mean, we're raised to think, you know, uh, think before you speak, think before you act. 
it's, this is where you put it into practice. Think about what you're doing before you do it. What is the outcome going to be? Is the outcome going to be beneficial to my child or is it going to be beneficial to my feelings in that moment? That is the main thing that that anybody can do. First off, you should be doing it in every area of your life, but specifically with parenting. That's one of the best ways to reparent yourself, to retrain yourself, taking that step back, breathing, getting yourself calm and then going forward. Whenever I have a kid who is fighting me physically, um, like punching me or slapping me like I ain't nothing. Um, and I want to, I'm from the streets and my first instinct, oh, you could have put your hands on me like that. Well, what's up? <laughs> I take a step back. I take a step back. I breathe. I empty my mind in that moment. Okay. And I will have that inner dialogue. This is a child. This is a child that is frustrated. Is it going to be beneficial to that child or you if you are frustrated too? No. Can you change anything in this moment? Yes. What can you change? This. Okay. Will that change the outcome to be pleasing and beneficial to both parties? Yes. Okay. Let's do that. That's what I do in almost all of my scenarios and situations. And you have to do that. it. I like that a lot because there are so many situations, most situations um, that are not life threatening that like, if you don't respond to them immediately, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and also um, that I think some parents see if they do not respond right away, then they might be perceived as a weak parent mm -hmm. or that their child will and that there will be um, an undesirable uh, power imbalance there or respect imbalance there when actually if you can calm yourself down and get regulated and approach the situation and provide nuance and teach your child the skill that they were lacking in that moment or, you know, and connect with them, like that is an incredibly strong thing to do. Yeah. In so many, you know, like for the relationship for yourself, Mm -hmm. And your kid will be like, wow, okay, so my parent is smart. Thank you. Yeah. Modeling behavior is like, I'm really big on that. Mm -hmm. It's um, It reminds me of when uh, Leslie was on the podcast, the first episode, mm -hmm. where um, she said that, like, those moments and those breakdowns in communication that lead to altercations most of the time are due to, like, a, a lack of a skill. A lack of an ability to uh, either communicate or to do something that leads to that level of frustration, which then explodes on both parts. So it's a lack of like skills on the parents' part to deescalate. And the, maybe a child is lacking the ability to verbalize something or to emotionally regulate. But it's not done out of this place of malice or being a bad kid or just being out of control, it is most of the time due to the fact that there is a skill that is lacking that could have helped um, mediate that situation. Exactly. This is gonna be a very intense episode for some people to listen to. What what you're doing now is helping raise, helping parents raise a generation of children that won't have to sit on a podcast and disassociate <laughs> when their childhood memories are brought up, you know? Um, that's, and that's my goal. That's, that's the goal, you know, it's like 
that's my goal as a parent too, is to empower this person to be, you know, to have that intrinsic motivation to be their own person and to like, my job is literally just to support that at all costs, you know, and to protect that, to protect what this person wants to be and can be in this world. And that's just my job to protect that, you know? And I think mm -hmm. that, um, you're doing such amazing work. Thank you so much. You are welcome. This has been great. <laughs> I kind of feel the way I felt at the end of Leslie's episode where I was like, this is so validating and I'm leaving my body. Um, <laughs> I think our listeners are going to really resonate and just have these like, yes, yes. I wish this for my parents. Um, and so I hope that, you know, a lot of our parent listeners hear this and that it resonates with them. And thank you for all of your content on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Again, you can find Gabe on TikTok, the indomitable black man. Are there other places that uh, people can find you? Um, you can find my Instagram, which only has my modeling and performance photos on there. But if you would like to go there and contact me, you can go to Instagram um, at the underscore giant underscore Gabe. Um, you can also go to my website, massevideo.com. That's M-A-S-S-E-V-I-D-E-O.com. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as we had making it. For more information and resources, please visit awteach.com. That's A-U-T-E-A-C-H dot com and join our mailing list to stay in the loop about updates and events. We look forward to bringing you a new episode next week. Until then, this has been the Autistic Tea Party.